invite you to open the scriptures with me, two passages, first of all, from 2 Timothy 1, the first 12 verses, and then we'll turn to Romans 8 as we're considering, continuing our series of sermons on Romans 8, 28 to 30, 2 Timothy chapter 1. <clears throat> Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy a beloved Son. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did. Without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner." But share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. And now we turn back to Romans 8, verses 28 through 30, which will be our text, and this time we will look at the text through the lens of calling, the third of the five links in the golden chain that we have in verse 30. But we read the entire text, because all three verses belong together. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. May God bless both the reading and the exposition of his word. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we continue this series on this text, and as I mentioned in our very first sermon, Romans 8 verse 28, especially the first line, is perhaps one of the most comforting and at the same time one of the most misused texts in all of Scripture. Very often you will see it hanging on a wall. Just those words, all things work together for good to those who love God. 
And the plain meaning of the text is a very hopeful and a very comforting one. And it's true, when trouble comes, God's children, those who love God, can take comfort that trouble will not have the last word. God is bigger than all of our troubles, and he will take care of us. That's true and comforting, but it is easily misunderstood, isn't it? Because isn't it true that sometimes it's either said or we think, upon hearing that, that Christian troubles then aren't really, aren't real. If we only focus on God and his word, then we always can be happy. There's no reason for a Christian to be discouraged and sad. But we know, having Scripture interpreting Scripture, that is not what the text means. We know it from our own experience as well, don't we? And sadly, sometimes also within the Christian church, when we seek to encourage someone, we We pass on this text, all things work together for good to those who love God, seeming to suggest to our fellow believers who are going through grief and difficulty that somehow they should feel guilty about that fact. That there's something wrong with a Christian in grief. And alas, some have done real damage to fellow believers by misusing this text for a purpose it was not meant. Others suggest that, no, 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 trouble is real for Christians. We acknowledge that. But Christians somehow deal with it differently than unbelievers. It's as if once you become a Christian, you have some superpower. And pain doesn't hurt as much. The loss of a loved one doesn't hurt you as much as it does an unbeliever. Well, that's simply not true, and it's even cruel. Because what it leads is people thinking, if that were true, that if I feel pain, then I must not be a very good Christian, or maybe not a Christian at all. If only I were a better Christian, then all my pain and trouble would be going away. Well, that's not the teaching of Scripture. Others suggest that if all things work together for good to those who love God, then when bad things come to me, that's automatically a sign of God's judgment. If all things work together for good and bad stuff come to me, then it can't be the hand of God. I must be under the judgment of God. I must have sinned. If I only repent from my sins, all will be well and all my troubles will go away. That's not true either, is it? When the disciples came to Jesus to a blind man and he was blind, he could not see. In John 9, he was sitting on the side of the road and his life was not a pleasant life. It wasn't nice to be never nice to be blind in any society, but in that society where There were no social services. There were no people to take care. If you lived with a physical disability, you were on the fringes of society. This man was living a very difficult life. 
And they came to Jesus and said, who sinned, him or his parents? What did Jesus say? Neither. But it's here that you might repent. No, it's very important for us as we consider Romans 8, verse 28, to assert and take it, grab hold of the very real comfort that is here in our text without falling into the traps of some of the common misconceptions and misuses of this text. And we have established in both of our previous sermons, that when we take a look at the context of Romans 8, that is certainly true to the context, isn't it? If you have your Bibles open, you'll remember that this section begins at verse 18. After the introduction in Romans 1, from Romans 1, I think it's 18 or 19, until Romans 8, verse 17, what we have is Paul providing in many ways, doctrinal instruction regarding the truth of sovereign grace. And Paul has systematically gone in, in a way that we might almost say is catechism-like, and he has worked us through total depravity. He has worked us through how we can be made righteous with God. He has gone through the problem of indwelling sin and the process of sanctification. All of these grand truths he has outlined for us. As he comes to Romans 8, verse, 17, verse 18, he says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which must be revealed in us. Having taught the Christians, the re, his readers in Rome, all of these grand truths, he says, stop a minute, the troubles of the present time, they're real. And let me take a minute, it's as if he's saying, and if he does, between Romans 8, verse 18 to the end of the chapter, before I continue on with this instruction, let me take these great truths and let me pastorally apply them to people in trouble. And Paul knew what he was talking about, didn't he? We know the story of Paul from the book of Acts. Summarizing his ministry to the Corinthian, Paul writes, We commend ourselves as a minister in need, in distress, in stripes, in imprisonment, in tumult, in labor, in sleeplessness, in fasting, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as dying and yet living, chastened and not yet killed, sorrowful, poor, having nothing yet possessing all things. Paul knew the full range of difficulties that the people of God experience. And Romans 8 is not a letter that's written to a church in a particular circumstance of trouble. It's not a particular challenge that Paul is addressing. It is the general challenge that all of God's people face between the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming again. That church age, which, is defi which defines what Paul says when he says this present time. And you and I, along with Paul, live in the church age. 
What are some of the sufferings? Romans 8 talks about them. Distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril or sword. And so on this first Sunday of the new year, opening the Word of God this afternoon, I come neither with prediction nor with a New Year's resolution. But rather I come with a straightforward description of the Word of God regarding the church in every year between Christ's first and second coming. Trouble is real. And you're going to experience it also in 2022. I'm not here to say the troubles will be more than they were in 2021 or any years preceding or less. That's for God to know. But this I do know. Troubles are real for the people of God and for the church of God, and they will be real for us in 2022. And while our text is a very encouraging one, all things work together for good to those who love God, that does not mean that pain will be avoided or that life will be easy. Well, what does it mean then? As I've mentioned, the three sentences of our text belong together. Verses 29 and 30 explaining verse 28. And what we have in our text is a golden chain of five parts. We're in the process of considering each link individually. But as we've already seen, as we've looked at the first two links, foreknowledge and predestination, they are very closely tied together. This is a chain. The links are put together. You cannot take the links of the chain apart. And the chain reaches back to eternity past before the world was made in which the triune God made a plan, including a list of those who would receive the gift of salvation to become the bride of Christ, to eternity future in which there will be a great wedding feast, and the bride of Christ will be united to her groom, and they will live together in the new heaven and the new earth. This isn't five separate stories. It's one story that is linked, but what a comforting story it is. God's plan is one that brings glory to his name. The church is a gift to his son. And God today is sovereignly gathering his church in order to achieve his purposes. In other words, it's not first of all about us. It's about God. And while on the first glance that may seem very humbling, in reality it's a great comfort to the church. It's good news, gospel news, that we also can uncover on this first Sunday of a new year. Well, let's continue unpacking this. We consider the third link of the golden chain under the theme, God is calling you. He's calling you with a purpose. It's a call like no other. And it's a call to a relationship. Text says, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, these are the same people who loved God. This is not an additional qualification, it's a different way of Paul saying the same thing. Now, the Greek word we have translated call has an official element to it. It's not the sort of call, children, that your mom might make when she calls you for dinner. And she reaches out, perhaps you're playing in the backyard, and 
with your friends. She goes to the back door. She says, dinner time. Come in. When your mom says that, does that mean that everyone who hears it has to come in? Your friends too? No, that's a general call that goes out and those to whom it applies can listen to it and follow. But this call is a different call. It's more like the call you receive when a lawyer or a policeman or a paralegal comes and knocks on your door and gives you a summons. And it has your name on it. And it says, on such and such a day you are to appear in court. It has that official element, the word call that we have in the Greek. My Greek Bible dictionary tells me that refusal is not an option for this call, or for the word calling here. Now the text links this call with that which we've already covered for knowledge and predestination, those whom he predestined, he also called. I remember last week, we talked about predestination. What is it? Predestination we can think of in various ways, but we can think of it as a list of those that God made in eternity to whom he promises the gift of salvation. And having created the listed predestination, calling is the next logical step. God is actively going out to call all those who are on his list. And when all of them are called, when the list is complete, then Christ will come again. We confess that in the Heidelberg Catechism when we talk about the gathering of the church. What do you believe regarding the holy Catholic Church, that God from the beginning of time is gathering, defending, and preserving for himself a church chosen to everlasting life. That's how the Heidelberg Catechism summarizes this teaching of Scripture in terms of the gathering of the church. God is actively calling. In our second point, we'll come back to how he's doing it. But listen to the text. He's called, we are called according to his purpose, to be conformed to the image of his Son. He reminds us that the purpose of our calling goes back to eternity. And first of all, as we saw last week, the gift is not to the benefit of those who are on the list. First of all, this is a gift from the Father and the Spirit to the Son. Christ Jesus himself desires the church as his bride. It is a gift to Christ. And so it is, because we are called according to his purpose, we are called to be the bride of Christ, that naturally it makes sense that the calling is not so we receive salvation. The calling is, first of all, that we are conformed to the image of his Son. Calling to be the bride of Christ doesn't mean we're just called to show up at the wedding day. No, we are called to be prepared for the wedding. There's a process of preparation that is going on. Christ calls us 
When he calls us, there is a focal point towards that great wedding day. And from the moment of our calling until that great wedding day takes place, we are being conformed. We are being prepared to be the bride of Christ. Now there are two additional pieces which are being added here. We all know that all things work together for those who love God, for which we know is the bride of Christ, that entire list of people whom God has elected. But our text adds some detail. By using the calling with that official summons word, he is saying it is very personal. It is specific. There are names on the list. And oh, haven't already in the Old Testament. The prophets highlighted that to Israel and to his people as a means of great comfort. Prophet Isaiah talks about the fact that you can go through deep waters, you can go through the fire. But God will take care of you. Why? Because he has engraved your name on the palm of his hand. We're going to carry the analogy of wedding forward in our present society. It's common when you become engaged to give a gift of a ring. And it is as if the ring of engagement has not, the calling has not only come to the church to be the bride of Christ, but Christ himself has put the ring of engagement with the name of his bride on his hand. Remember last week we read from John 17? What did Jesus say to the Father? None of those whom you have given me I have lost. There is no name on the list of the bride of Christ that is unimportant. Child of God, Those who love God, those who have been called and who believe on him, know this. Your name is on his hand. Not the name of the church. Not just all believers who've been there from from the beginning of time to the end of time. Your name. None of them will be lost, Jesus told his father. Every name on that list is important. Now he knows full well that the church of Jesus Christ is not made of people who are identical circumstances. On the one hand, yes, we are all the same, sinners in need of grace. But we are not all the same. We were created differently. We were created to look differently. We were created with different characteristics. And that's part of the glory of creation. God could have made just one type of fish and just one type of tree and just one type of person, but he didn't. Because his glory is increased by the diversity of the creation. And the glory of his bride is increased by the diversity of the church and the different gifts that he gives. We don't have time, but we could go 
through Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about how all these gifts fit together perfectly to make the body of Christ. And how to reach out. That's part of God's glory. It's not just a functional thing. But God delights in these gifts. He's made us in that way. But sin has affected all of this and that's why the text says he's called you to be conformed to the image of Christ. Yes, in our diversity, our process of sanctification isn't identical for every one of us. Each one of us has a different process of sanctification. Why? Because we have different gifts. We also have different sins and different proclivities. Oh yes, we're all totally depraved, but not all in an identical way. Some of us struggle much more with a particular sin and much less with a different sin. God made us, and it's part of the goodness of God that we are different. He did not make us as clones, and that's to his glory. And while the sin affects us all in a total way, every aspect of our being is affected by sin That also means the process of sanctification is individual. And so we are are called to be conformed to the image of Christ. Why is this so significant? Well, this is Pastor Paul applying the doctrine of sovereign grace for the comfort of his people. Your circumstances are no accident. Nothing happens outside of the plan of God. And the purpose of salvation, that Christ may be exalted with his bride, has great implications for the bride of Christ. She is to be prepared for the wedding And this isn't just any wedding. This isn't a wedding in which we go and we buy a dress that someone else has worn before. This isn't a wedding in which the menu will be the best menu that someone had before. No, this is the wedding of Christ and his bride. That is what you and I are being prepared for. The wedding of the bride. We have a missing page. The wedding of the bride has great implications because it means that our calling is personal. It is specific. And So we go to our second point then. It's a call like no other. What exactly is this call? The word calling is used in different ways in the Scripture and can refer to different things. 1 Corinthians 7, 20, Paul writes, let each remain in the calling in which he is called. And there he's talking about our job or our vocation. Romans 1, Paul uses calling in terms of his own calling to the ministry. And often it's used in a general sense regarding the gospel call that goes out to all who hear preaching. Matthew 22, 14. Many are called, 
few are chosen. Proverbs 8.14, to you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. The use of call in our text in Romans 8 is none of those. Here and in several other New Testament passages, the call is referring to what we call in theology the effectual call. Now, there are several features of this call to which we need to take notice. First of all, this call is a sovereign call. It comes from God. That's very clear in the passage. I don't think I need to spend much time in it. God is the one who calls. Those he, he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. God is the one who is doing the calling here. It's personal. Already highlighted that in our first point, but we can see that also, and that's one of the reasons I read from 2 Timothy 1. Did you see in 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 and 9, He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Also, in Timothy, Paul links the call to the purpose and grace given to us in Christ. Calling is a work of grace. It's a work of the Holy Spirit that produces a response. And because it is divine, and because it has that purpose, it is effective. This call produces the fruits of faith and repentance. It is an essential part of coming to Christ. And so I have to ask you, have you heard that call? I'm not asking you, have you heard preaching? As I look at the audience, I don't see anyone here who isn't regularly here. All of you hear the preaching on a regular basis. All of you hear the general call that goes out to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to repent of your sins and to trust in Him as your Savior. But have you heard and have you responded to that call with the Holy Spirit working in your heart that has produced the fruit of faith and repentance? Someone says, wait a minute. You said a minute ago this was a sovereign call, so I can't really do anything about it, can I? Oh, we will never fully be able to explain what appears to us a contradiction between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. But yet, as certainly as I can preach to you based on a text that speaks of the sovereignty of God, I can also speak of his graciousness and the freedom of this call that says, whosoever will, let him come and drink of the water of life freely, that whoever calls, he will answer. And so I can say with gospel authority to you this afternoon, to you who may have heard hundreds of general calls, but perhaps there are as almost inevitably of a congregation of this size, some who have never really heard the call. Some who have to say, if you're honest with yourselves, I don't know this God. 
I have not truly believed. Well, this afternoon I come to you with this call to say God invites you, Christ invites you to a glorious future as the bride of Christ. Will you marry him? Oh, that isn't a call to a life without trouble. It's a call to be conformed to his image. What a glorious call it is. It's a call like no other because it's a call to a relationship. We see something of that as we come to our final point. And the answers to the call that are clearly outlined also in 2 Timothy may be helpful for us to have our Bibles open as we go back over that passage that we read together. Paul speaks to Timothy in verse 9. Paul is writing this to Timothy, who he is knowing. He said, he has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Paul is telling Timothy that both Timothy and Paul have been able to respond to that holy calling. When did that happen? Well, we know the story in the case of Paul, don't we? It was a dramatic story in Acts 9. Paul's on his way to Damascus to pursue, persecute the Christians. And he hears a voice and he's blinded by the light. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting you? Now this is sovereign grace if we've ever seen it. Paul's heading to Damascus with a certain purpose of persecuting the church of Christ. And Christ Jesus comes in a dramatic way extraordinary way and intervenes in his life. The light shines from heaven. Paul hears a voice and he says, what do you want me to do? Arise, go to the city and you'll be told what to do. And we know the story from there. Paul hears the call. He responds. He obeys. And he's able to write to Timothy that he has been called in that sovereign way. But Paul uses the plural here, doesn't he? Timothy. Timothy's story is a very different story. We have a hint of it in verse 5 and following. Verse 5, Paul recalls when he says, I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Timothy met Paul when he was still quite young. In Acts 16, we have the account of Paul coming to Derby and Lystra, and a certain disciple was there, we read, named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed. His father was Greek, and he was well spoken of. Paul invites Timothy, who evidently showed interest in the gospel, to come with him, to serve as an assistant. And Paul and Timothy went. Now, in order to do that, Timothy, whose father was Greek, as we just read, had to be circumcised so as not to, con- to cause offense also among the Jews. And so Paul circumcises Timothy. And if you take a look at the passage here and read it carefully, you'll notice that all of the verbs are active verbs on Timothy's part. God has given him a sound mind. Hold fast the pattern of sound words you have heard. 
Timothy is invited to follow and to serve with Paul and to believe, and he has. And so it is that Paul can write in this passage that God has called us not according to our works, but according to his purpose and grace given to us in Christ Jesus before the time began. And out of that, Paul and Timothy are living lives of faith and obedience. And so it is, just as with Paul and with Timothy, it was their response and faith to the gospel, so it remains to us today. We hear with our ears the invitation to believe, and you must respond. The gospel is coming to your ears. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Oh, someone says, but what if my name is not on the list? It's not a question for unbelievers to ask. The world is condemned and God comes and offers the gift of salvation and it's only Satan trying to create obstacles, trying to make you smarter than God, even as he did with Eve, that causes you to create an excuse that you might not be elect. The gospel call comes freely, and the question is, how do you respond? There are only two possible responses. We either respond with faith and repentance, trust Him, or we reject Him. Someone says, well, maybe at a different time, maybe later, Understand that that too is a response of rejection. I mentioned early children, earlier children when your mother may come to the back porch and call you for dinner. If you pretend not to hear her and just keep playing, what is that? It's disobedience. Oh, we can dress it up with pious words like later, at a more convenient season. But it's disobedience. Disobedience to the call. What does obedience look like? Well, in the case of Paul, the Lord spoke to Paul. through the, He sent the prophet Ananias, and we read in Acts 9, 9, verse 20, immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. When we believe the gospel call, we enter into a relationship with Christ and he becomes the one whom we are betrothed to marry. And we become part of the bride he intends to marry. We know who he is, the Son of God. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Not I know all the doctrines of sovereign grace. I've got it all figured out. Did you catch that in verse 12? He didn't say, I know what I've believed. He says, I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. Paul knows whom, not what. 
Oh, his mind is convinced of the truth. It's not that Paul ignores all the truths of the doctrine. But you see, truth fundamentally is not a set of beliefs. It's a set of beliefs and trust in a person. Fundamentally, faith is this, that we believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. At the end of the day, we can frame it in a thousand different ways. But it comes down to this. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is whom he says he is? The eternal Son of God who took on human flesh, who paid the price of sin and achieved perfect righteousness and now lives at the right hand of the throne of God while the triune God is busy gathering a church to become his bride that will live forever. If you believe that with all your heart, and you know that he is who he says he is, a trustworthy one, as we heard this morning, a God of goodness, believe and trust in him and you will be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You're called to a relationship. And oh, Paul, even in describing this relationship, can't help himself. He is able, Paul says. The Greek word there is dynamos, dynamites. He is powerful to keep that which I've committed. It speaks of that trust relationship between bride and bridegroom. The word keeping that which is committed is the same word that would have been used in that time if you had given an expensive deposit for someone and held it in safekeeping or trust. God will keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. What day? The day when the bride of Christ will be married to him. He will keep it. He will guard it. He's not going to put it away. Christ himself is active. All the words speak of belonging to a relationship. Calling is the third link in the golden chain that links the plan of God foreordained in eternity past with the glorification that awaits God in eternity future. It's a chain about God and his glory. It's a very different Perspective than a secular perspective entering a new year, isn't it? If this were a secular pulpit, and if the Bible were not true, the best I could come to you on the first Sunday of a new year is to say we've, the calendar has changed, a new year is here. Make the most of time. Time is scarce. We're all going to die. Eat, drink, and be merry. Bad stuff's likely to happen this year. You're going to be the victim. Really, you should be able to choose the life you want to, but whether it's nature, other people, pandemics, accidents, circumstances, you're probably going to be prevented from doing so. Oh, I can wish you a second or happy new year. I can give you all of my good wishes and hope that all will go well, but they're nothing but empty words. And when the time of trouble comes, when bad stuff comes, and we have to meet 
secular people, we have to meet each other in a funeral line or in a hospital, next to a hospital bed, what can we say? It's too bad. Just have to deal with it. Oh, let me give you a hug. But it's beyond our control. Well, we don't say it, but we could add, don't worry, 70 or 80 years from now we'll all be forgotten. Stop and think about it. What can you think of your grandparents' lives 100 years ago right now? How How many details of your grandparents' lives can you think of? If the Bible is not true, and if what we see is all there is, the greatest comfort that a secular person can offer someone else is don't worry about it, you'll probably be forgotten within a century. That's all that life is without Christ. In Romans, Paul is teaching us of the sovereignty of God. For eight chapters, we have learned it's only through the sovereign grace of God that sinful men, dead in trespasses and sin, enemies of God. It's only through God's grace that he, we can have any dealings with him. But praise God, through Christ all can be made right. Paul doesn't pretend this translates into a happy-go-lucky life. Life has its troubles. That entire list I just enumerated for the secular person, the Christian faces those same challenges. But, Paul says, it's different. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those He did foreknow, He did predestinate. Those He predestinated, He called. Those He called, He justified. Those He justified, He glorified. Oh, we have even greater vistas to unfold in our next two sermons. Because the story is not about the world being unfair to us when bad stuff happens. The story of history is not that we're going to be forgotten in the dustbins of history. No, we are creatures of importance and significance. And we are significant because Almighty God Himself created us to be image bearers of Him. You and I are a picture of Almighty God. And to those who respond to the gospel call, who respond with faith and repentance, we're not only image bearers. We're part of the bride of Christ, destined to live with Him in glory. This isn't a story we read about in a fairy tale. It's not a bunch of truths taught to us as an alternative philosophy. No, the Almighty God determined this from all eternity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons who delight in each other. These same three persons of the Trinity have called His people into relationship. God the Father looks on them as His children, as a tender father, protecting, providing, caring. The tender love a father has for all his children dear, such love the Lord bestows on them who worship him in fear. God, the Holy Spirit, comes to indwell us, to give us his fruit, love, joy, peace, kindness, generosity, gentleness, self-control. 
God the Son, our, return, our beloved groom, desires to know us even as he knows the Father and to delight in us. And so he comes to live in us. So our lives are inseparable from him. And even as we face life's challenges, we can say, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live by the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God is calling you this afternoon to a relationship with him. Are you going to accept? Are you going to receive his invitation? Confess your sin and trust him? Knowing he is faithful who promised. Can you say with Paul, I know whom I have believed? And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day? Let's pray together. Oh Lord God most holy, we stand on our tippy toes to try to imagine the depths of these truths. Lord, when we contrast to what life would be like if we did not have the Bible, the emptiness that, with which the events of life could be explained, and the hopelessness with which we would have to enter into a new year, Lord, it causes us to tremble, to think that there are so many in the world around us, and Lord, perhaps some even in this sanctuary who are living in that way. Oh Lord, we praise you for the glory of the gospel, that it need not be so, but that your gospel goes out freely, that whosoever will, let him come and drink the water of life freely, that if we seek you, you will, we will find you. And Lord, that you will take us wherever we are and conform us to your image so that one day we will be glorified with you, living forever in that new heaven and the new earth. Oh, grant that these truths may not be things we hear with our ears or think about with our minds, but they may penetrate into our hearts. And indeed, that we may leave here this day also saying, indeed, we have tasted and seen that God is good. Be with us as we go from this place. Bless us. Make us a blessing. Keep us from sin and danger. And forgive us our sins, also the sins of worship. We ask it all for Jesus' sake. Amen.